Welcome to The Spoken World, a platform created by writers for writers from around the world. Storytellers should be appreciated. We literally write history. I don't graduate for six years now. Everywhere I go, now job done. Hello everyone who are here. Your favorite Nigerian spoken word poet, voiceover artist and podcaster. And yes, this is season four of the podcast. And like always, I'd like to thank everyone who helped with this, donated their time, our guests and listeners. Special shout out to Memma Music for the podcast background music, Boys Know They Smile, and to Will Be Creative for the amazing logo. Their links are in the show notes. And now we're back to talking about amazing storytellers from across the globe. And this week, we have a special one. It's Man of Action. Man of Action, an American writer collective, actually made up of four amazing comic writers, Joe Casey, Joe Kelly, Duncan Rulo, and Stephen T. Siegel. They created the Ben 10 series and Generator X. They've worked on Marvel Comics and Big Hero 6. Big, big, big awesome projects. And my favorite is Ben 10. I love the concept. It was new, funny, unexpected in so many ways. And the early 2000s, like, <laughs> what a time to be alive. I had the Benton merchandise when I was younger and I still remember the theme song and can sing it, I promise you, word for word, but I'm not going to do that because nobody wants to hear it, believe me. Instead, I will be talking to one of the creators, Stephen T. Siegel. Wow. Uh, thank you, Hua. It's a, a delight to be here and I'm super excited that you invited me. Thank you so much. So going right straight uh, into it, I've like had a lot of... Uh, uh, so I, I was a little nervous at the start, as you should be able to notice uh, or not. But uh, I wanted to know how exactly Man of Action started out. So that was, you know, the first thing that we talked about. What is Man of Action? Uh, so Man of Action is four friends, myself uh, and fellow comic book creators, Joe Casey, Joe Kelly and Duncan Rulo. Mm-hmm. And we knew each other from working in comic books uh, in America. And eventually we wound up all working together uh, in the X-Men universe. Mm. Both Joe's and myself were writing and Duncan was drawing one of the books for that. And they used to have these kind of fun, uh, daunting story conferences at a big mansion in New York that looked kind of like the X-Men mansion. And we would sit there and pitch stories along with, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 other writers, editors, Marvel professionals. And they were kind of fun and kind of infuriating. You know, there's a lot of people throwing ideas out simultaneously. And we all thought, well, I like their ideas. We really seem to gravitate toward the same kind of things uh, in this bit of a madhouse. Mm -hmm. And then over time, we all migrated to DC Comics to work on the Superman comics. And it was a similar group writing session. Uh, But the thing that both jobs had in common was that both companies were in turmoil when we were on these very big properties. Marvel was going bankrupt when we were on the X-Men, which is hard to imagine now. They're so successful. Mm -hmm. And DC had had their Superman movie collapse right as we took over, or I took over Superman. The other guys had been on it for a while. And so the the kind of hassle and chaos of working uh, on these big projects was annoying. But what made it tolerable was that we were there with friends working together. And so at some point we thought we should work together like we are, but maybe not for the big companies. Maybe we just do it for ourselves and make stuff up that we can either use or big companies can buy from us. Uh, and that's that's kind of how Man of Action was born. 
Great, we covered the basics. Now to what I was really curious about. Benton. So, talking about uh, different people who are creative that came together and then started creating, you know, stuff for the little guys. Benton, which basically blew up. Um, <laughs> how did anyone come up with a cartoon where the hero is a child that can turn into 10 different aliens by slapping a wristwatch to save the planet from intergalactic threats? I'm actually really curious about how that started. So, well, the other part of the Man of Action origin story is that we also, because we all worked in comics, would go to San Diego Comic-Con every year, which is a very big show that over the years just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And it eventually got so big that it was exhausting for those of us who remembered it when it was smaller and and a little more quaint. And we jokingly said this convention would be much easier to deal with if we could just sit down and watch it walk by us instead of having to walk through the whole thing. Uh, And then the more we joked about that, the more that seemed like actually a really good idea. So we got a booth at the San Diego Comic-Con they asked us what our company name was. We didn't have a company. So we just said, well, we're, we're called Evil Geniuses. And they said, no, there's already an Evil Geniuses for Comic-Con. And we're like, really? How did that happen? <laughs> so then we changed it again to Man of Action. Uh, we just said, our, our company is Man of Action. But we had no company at that time. And while we were sitting there watching the convention go by, it was like a really good place to meet friends and leave all the comics and toys you bought under the table and not have to carry it around all day. While we were sitting there, people would come up to us and go, man of action, what do you do? And we're like, well, we're writers. And so the first year we did it, somebody hired us to write some short films. The second year we got hired to write some video games. And the third year, the two guys who do Robot Chicken, uh, Matt Senreich and Seth Green, there are more obviously people that do Robot Chicken, but at the time those were the ones we kind of knew. But Matt Senreich came up to us and said, Cartoon Network asked us to pitch them a boys superhero show that's kind of like the Fantastic Four. We don't really do that, but you guys can do that, right? And we said, of course we can, even though we had never mm-hmm. done any animation before at all. <laughs> and so uh, he said, well, I'll introduce you to Sam Register, who's the executive over there. And we had a little phone meeting and he said, I want Fantastic Four for 10-year-old boys. And we said, okay, we'll come in and pitch you a show. But as we talked about it amongst ourselves, we didn't think boys would want the Fantastic Four. Like that's not really a... 10-year-old kind of show. It's more of a family-based team. Uh, So we sat down and for many weeks, we made up many different shows. And in fact, when we were done, we had 20 different ideas uh, that we had written out. And so we went into Cartoon Network and we said, well, we have 20 ideas that we want to share with you. And they said, whoa, 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 too many ideas. And we said, don't worry, we're only going to do one minute on each idea. uh, And then we're going to ring a bell and we'll move on to the next idea, no matter where we are in the pitch. And so we did, and it was crazy. It was like uh, each of us had five things that we'd talk through. We would just trade one after another. We ran a stopwatch, and every 60 seconds, we just quit and move on to the next idea. And the eighth idea in the list was Ben 10, and we did it, and Sam Register said, stop, that's it, that's the show we wow. want. And we said, well, we're not going to stop because we have 12 more ideas that we worked on, and we're going to tell you all of them. So he let us finish, and he said, no, it's still the Ben 10, that's the show we want. Uh, and they bought it right in the room, which wow. was crazy. Wow. Okay, so did you always know that there was going to be, well, obviously you just like wrote like a, a short of um, different ideas that you wanted to pitch the Cartoon Network, but did you ever imagine that this particular, whatever cartoon that they picked was going to have like a sequel? No, 
<laughs> I uh, different man of action guys will tell you different things, but I I couldn't believe we sold anything, and then I couldn't believe that it got on the air, and then I couldn't believe that it kept staying on the air, and even now, when it's still on the air, many many years later, 15 years or something on, I I pinch myself and go, is this actually <laughs> happening? Uh, I remember I went to um, I worked with an artist in Denmark named Teddy Christensen on a number of comic books, and. Once when I went to visit him, my wife and I took a, a boat ride from Sweden to Denmark, little overnight uh, ferry boat. And I went in the gift shop because I couldn't sleep and it was still open. And half of the gift shop was Danish and Swedish souvenirs. And the other half of the gift shop was Ben 10 merchandise. Just so you know, at this point I was like, wow, success. Uh, but you know, people accuse me of being numb towards my interviews and that is just not true. It's just that I need to keep my mic off to avoid interruptions, you know, like I'm doing right now. I'm so sorry, back to the interview. And that's that's when it hit me. I was like, oh my gosh, this, this show is all over the place. Like how does it get on a boat? <laughs> in the middle of the, the sea between Denmark and Sweden. It just blew my right, mind. Right, right. Like, I, I can't even imagine um, creating something and just thinking of it as, you know, let's just try this. And then having it just blow up so much so that even you can't believe it, right? <laughs> so, um, it's, going it's into crazy. some of the details, right? So 10 aliens, 10 different personalities, 10 different um, universe. Whose job was what to come up with these 10 different personalities? And I'm actually very like excited to know how you came up with the names. So there was Ghost Freak, there was Four Arms, there was Accelerate, spelled as the letters XL, R8, um, Grey Matter, and the rest. So how um, did, did we come up with the idea of creating these 10 different aliens that had their own sort of personalities, even though they were, you know, Ben, but still? Sure. Uh, well, there, there's a couple of pieces to that answer. One piece of that is... The four of us uh, in Man of Action, though we like each other and we agree on what's cool pretty quickly, we don't like the same things. And we don't make the same kind of stories the same way. We have very different tastes. And that's kind of good. So we had a lot of different input coming into each of these ideas, uh, and we still do to this day. Uh, and we, you know, we fight for what we like and we don't like the same things. But when somebody lands on something and we go, that's, I haven't heard that before. I haven't seen that before. Then we all kind of jump on and try to build that idea up. So when Ben 10 started, uh, they were not aliens. The, the, the original idea that we pitched was a kid switches with himself from 10 different dimensions. So in a certain dimension, it's a dimension of where the, the earth is on fire because of climate problems. And as a result, the bin in that dimension burns and we call that bin heat blast. So the idea that we originally sold was a kid switching with other versions of himself from parallel dimensions. And each dimension had a different power, basically. And they liked that. But then as we were talking about it through the development process, everyone kind of agreed that seemed very complicated for like a seven-year-old to wrap their head around. I actually, I'm not sure about that. I think seven-year-olds get a lot. But in general, it was determined that was too tricky. But eventually we landed on this idea of aliens uh, instead of superheroes. There were a lot of superhero things going on and we thought, well, it might be more interesting to have them be aliens. And as we do, since we're comic book creators, first and foremost, we love to build big worlds. So I think all the guys went off and said, you know, here's my 10, here's my 10, here's my 10, here's my 10 aliens that we would use. And we just picked the power sets that seemed the most interesting. And the only alien uh, that made it from the very beginning through the very end 
was Accelerate. That's the only name that stuck uh, and power. The other ones went through lots of changes. And the reason why is because most names, when you think of them, you're like, I'm going to call him Firehead. And then you try to get that name through legal clearances and you find out that there are 13 Fireheads that already exist and you can't use the name. So usually when we're naming new aliens in Ben 10, we have to submit to Cartoon Network numerous names and then they run them through legal clearance until one of them sticks. Uh, so we usually rank them in the order we like them, but we always know we're probably not going to get number one or number two or even number four or five sometimes. It's just what will clear legal, except Accelerate, which made it all the way through. So a little boy eventually grows into his teens, slaps a watch and screams the name of the form he possesses. I love Ben 10 and I am, you know, a huge fan of kid action shows when I was a kid. One of them, we actually interviewed the original in season two, um, Jason David Frank from the Power Rangers. And I wanted to know if there was any connection whatsoever in the creation of um, Ben 10. Uh, well, yeah, no is the answer to Power Rangers. It's funny because in America, everyone asks, is Ben 10 influenced by a DC Comics comic called Dial H for Hero? And the answer to that is also no. When we made up these 20 ideas, we weren't sitting around going, hey, what if the Fantastic Four was made out of marshmallows instead of you know human, ad- human atoms? And it's just not the way we work. Like we don't want things to remind us of other things. And obviously sometimes you come up with things and you go, oh, that seems a lot like. We try not to base our, our creations on things that already exist. We try to think from a, a clear space. So with Ben 10, what I think it was Duncan who first said, you know, kids always turn into superheroes in these shows, but real kids don't like one toy. They like lots of toys. So what if a kid could turn into multiple heroes, not a single hero? And we immediately love that idea because kids will often choose wrong. It's like, ah, oh, I've got to get through this ice monster. I'm going to turn into my fire monster because that seems easiest. But easiest isn't always best. Speed might be the better way to confront the ice monster. And so this idea of a kid having too many things to choose from, kind of getting into deeper trouble because he makes the wrong choice, and then having, for example, Gwen, uh, his cousin, help him out by saying, you know, if you were being logical about this, you would become uh, Accelerate instead of Heat Blast. That seemed like a really good dynamic for telling stories and something that kids could really relate to, which is making the best choice instead of making your favorite or first choice. Yes, Gwendolyn Tennyson. I can't have been the only one shocked to find out that the magic loving lucky girl was now an alien. I was sort of shocked when the sequel, the spin-off that's Alien Force Ultimate Alien came about. I was actually wondering what Gwen was going to be like. Because we had seen in a in an episode in Ben 10 Classic where um, we saw a future Gwen, right? And she had the short hair, badass, went to college. She was now Gwendolyn and all that. By this time, she was like, you know, master magician as she'd always wanted to be. Um, what happened? By the time we got to Alien Force, she was now an alien um, that uses mana, whose true form had serious anger issues and anodite. What happened there? How did that happen? (laughs) Uh, Well, first of all, you have to know that Man of Action sometimes is in charge of Bintin and sometimes consults on Bintin and sometimes writes on it and Mm -hmm. sometimes doesn't. It's been on so long and we have a lot of other jobs and commitments that we do that we're not always in charge of everything. And so for quite a long period, 
uh, Dwayne McDuffie was the, you know, the, the spiritual guru of all things Ben 10 and shaped those massive stories. Uh, he has since passed on, which is a tragedy because he's a, uh, was a brilliant creative mind and, and a really great person. Um, but a lot of those choices were his. We didn't love that particular choice. So one of the things we told Cartoon Network when they said, we want to age it all up, was we said, not too fast, not too soon. Uh, and they ignored that note and went ahead and made him you know, 15 years old right away. We thought that was too big of a jump. We would have done it much slower if it was completely up to us, but it isn't uh, completely up to us. So that was one thing we would have done differently. But the whole purpose of Gwen in our mind is Ben is the expression of having powers and thinking you need powers in order to be successful in a, in a quest or a mission. Gwen's purpose is to say, no, the human mind and the human body are actually enough if you use them the right way. So that counterbalance to us is key to the DNA of the show. And so we did not love that they made Gwen uh, into an energy being. And that's why in the, the reboot, which is one that we took over, she's just Gwen. You know, we like that she likes magic. We would never give her magic powers. Uh, we like that she encounters aliens. We would never make her an alien. We think that her core purpose requires that she be a human being with a great brain and Ben is a human being with a great watch. Nice. I, I think I kind of finally understand that because even like when my brothers and I would watch it and we saw Gwen and her energy blast thing was all purple. We're like, what is, what is happening? <laughs> <laughs> we're like, what, what's going on? What's going on? As always. Um. <laughs> well, it's, it's one of the things about a long running show is you you feel like you have to keep reinventing everything or it will get dull. And that's kind of true. But for Man of Action, we strongly believe that you can't really mess with the DNA of something. There are lots of ways that you can play with Gwen without turning her into something she's not. So we would not make her an alien in this time. Speaking of turning people into something that they are not originally, uh, Kevin joined the trio um, with Alien Force. And we were excited to actually see Kevin. I don't know about anybody else, but I was excited because everyone always loves the villain becomes, you know, hero okay. and all of Important that. Important question. Between, you know, you guys know how you that. watch cartoons and instantly start to think, if I were in a cartoon, what boy would be tripping over me? Like, what boy would embarrass himself to hang out with me? That, for me, was hands down Kevin Eleven because not only was he cute, he was the bad boy. No, no, no. Listen, listen, Gwen. I love you, but take several seats. Like, if I was in Ben 10, I wouldn't even need powers from a different universe. My human energy is ultimate. Or, wait, you guys don't actually do that, right? Because you're normal. I can sense the judgment. Now, let's listen to the creation of my favorite character. So, Kevin Eleven. Who encouraged Kevin to be part of the trio with ben and gwen obviously grandpa grandpa max was taken out so were there like other suggestions about who else was going to join both of them or it was just going to be the two of them um throughout the rest of the series yeah kevin was a character who always kind of forced his way into things and it's funny he came about at the very first pitch uh not the very first pitch the first development meeting when we were just making the show uh, and they asked us about villains, and we had made up some villains. And we have the two Joes in Man of Action. We call one Good Joe, and we call one Evil Joe, uh, because a Good Joe is good, and Evil okay. Joe is evil. But Evil Joe uh, loves to like just say things that are provocative, 
and and make trouble. And that's kind of the energy he brings to our group. And it's it's useful in a lot of ways. And so one of the things he said, uh, Cartoon Network asked if there would be other kids in the show. And he goes, yeah, of course there are. And we hadn't <laughs> talked about this. He goes, you know, there's going to be some punk kid named Kevin 11. He's like one year older and one inch taller. And he's got one more alien. Uh, and it was, he was just riffing and it was, at first we were like, what is he talking about? This is a terrible idea. But then we were like, that's exactly how it is. Like when you're a kid and you're like, I can run faster than anybody in my neighborhood. Some other kid is going to move into your neighborhood and run just a little faster than you. Like that, that always seems to happen. And so we loved that idea of the foil of the kid who's just one more than Ben. Uh, and he immediately was in the show. And I think that Again, it's just getting back to the DNA, that idea of Ben thinking he's superior because he has 10 aliens. And here comes a kid who has 11, you know, his watch goes to 11 and he's 11 years old instead of 10. And he's, you know, four foot 11 instead of four foot 10. Like just one more seemed like such a good trigger for Ben that when the spinoff came, that seemed like a really good dynamic to, to play on. Also, Kevin was just really popular. So when you're looking at how you forward a show, you obviously, you don't want to make it exactly what the fans ask for. You should give them what they need as much as what they want, or it won't be interesting. But there was a demand for Kevin, and he fit in. And a trio is a lot more interesting just from a character construction point of view than a duo. A duo has, you know, kind of polar polar things you can play with, but a trio has different sides of the triangle that you can play with. The antagonism of Ben and Kevin, the romance of Gwen and Kevin, the friendship of Gwen and Ben. So those kind of parameters give you much more to play with. Ah yes, the moment you're waiting for, the reboot. At a point, um, I love the Ben's End classic. I always feel like that is the best. Then, you know, we have Alien Force. Um, Ultimate Alien, at this point, I was like, what is happening? And then Omniverse and then the reboots. People still have mixed me. feelings about the Ben I'm 10 people. reboots that's airing now. That's me. Um, I quite like the Ben 10 classic. But what do you feel about people's perception when they are talking about the new one, the Ben 10 reboots, which you created as opposed to, just like what you said, the 15-year-old Ben and Gwen, you were still trying to keep it original? Yeah, well, so it's, it is humbling that Ben 10 is still on the air this much later. We sold the original concept in 2005, I want to say. It might be that we sold it in 2003 and it hit the air in 2005. Uh, it's an, an early day for me and my brain is not quite in, in a location. But, you know, it's been over a decade, which is great. Um, and one of the reasons that Ben 10 stays on the air is because it gets reinvented. But the byproduct of that is that people who love the version that's on miss that version when it's gone. And that's totally understandable. But the only reason Ben 10 survives is because we keep making it a show for a new audience. Uh, and Ben 10 had aged so much and gotten so mature uh, because our fan base had grown up with the show. And while we love, 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 like all the 20 year olds who saw the first one when they were you know, seven or eight years old, uh, we can't make the show for them or there will not be a show. The show always has to gravitate toward a seven, eight, or nine-year-old finding the show and growing up with it a little bit before they move on to the next thing they fall in love with. Um, our older fans do love it, but the finances of animation are not supported by adults watching cartoons. They're supported by kids watching cartoons. So we just felt like 
we had told so many stories with Ben aging up, being older, leaving home, leaving family, having relationships, getting a motorcycle, you know, all that stuff, that it was time to really dig back into that original Ben 10 vibe and introduce a new set of kids, a whole new generation, really, to that idea of the precocious 10-year-old and his cousin and their grandpa on this endless summer vacation uh, where he has that process of discovery. And the other thing people react to uh, if they react negatively is just the change in visual style. But each time Ben 10 reboots, it has a new director, it has a new artistic team, it usually has a new writing team. And you've got to hire really great people and then you've got to let them be the creative person they are. So John Fang, who designed the reboot, we had also worked with on our show Generator Rex, and he doesn't draw at all uh, like any of the teams that did the previous shows. So to make him force himself to be in that style would be wrong. It's more important that he brings his style to the new version. And kids who are finding that show as the very first Ben 10 they'll ever see, that's going to be the look the look of Ben 10 they love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the people who are familiar with different kinds of Ben 10 are going to go, ah, what is this look? Uh, and then when we make the new show after that show, those kids are going to say, oh, you ruined it. Uh, and we get that. It's just, it's part of evolution. It's part of it staying alive. It's part of it staying fresh. Uh, so changes... Most people don't like, uh, some people do, but they do have to occur or there just wouldn't be a Ben 10. And now we're talking about um, keeping it fun and light. You've been a creator for years. Um, Apart from the projects that you've worked on in terms of cartoons, you write your own stuff. How do you keep it fun and light? I've worked in the media, whether it's for clients or my personal projects, and I know how demanding the industry can be. Back here in Nigeria, it's not so big as it is in the US, so... With all the demands, you know, deadlines, and when people are infuriating, how do you keep things light enough to get your work to reflect that? That's a great question, and it is really, really important to do that. I have, I've been a professional writer now for 33 years since my first thing was published. Um, And I do find that you have to take care of yourself as a creative person. You've got to build systems that let you, as you say, stay young, refresh, find new creative expression. Uh, And there's a few things I'll tell you that are my kind of go-to toolbox for that. First up is you've got to constantly have new input. So I think, you know, I know a lot of people who read only comic books and then make only comic books. And the comic books that they make often feel like copies of copies. So I think if you love comics, you need to listen to concerts, classical music, you need to go to plays. You need to read novels, read poetry. Most of my reading is poetry, uh, avant-garde fiction, and theater. And yet most of my writing is animation, comic books, and television. So the kind of stuff that I'm inputting does not equal the kind of stuff that I'm outputting, which lets me bring in outside influences that are not derivative of the thing I'm making. So I think that's a really good strategy. Another thing that I do personally is I take one day a week to only work on new material. So my job has a lot of scripts I have to read and notes I have to give and rewrites I have to do and episodes. Like if we when we did Spider-Man and the Avengers at the same time, I could have done a Marvel script really every day of the week for a year. But I in- insisted that on Thursdays, which is my day, I take time off. I meet with a group of writers. We go to a Korean spa in Los Angeles. We used to. Now we're on COVID lockdown. But uh, for seven or eight years, we've been doing this. Uh, And we all just sit there and work all day on new stuff, new screenplay, new TV show, new animated show, new comic book. 
so that we're not just stuck in the job that we're doing. Uh, and then the last thing I would say is, I think it's really critical to figure out who you are and what your frame of reference is and what is that story you tell that no one else can tell because of who you are and what your frame of reference is. Um, I might do Daredevil at some point for Marvel, but the worst thing I could do would be to reference Frank Miller's Daredevil or Brian Bendis' Daredevil, which I liked, and try to emulate that because that work already exists and it's unique to those creators that worked on it. I've got to go, okay, I'm not blind. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a superhero. What do I bring to Daredevil that is me so that I tell a story about Daredevil only I would tell? And there you have it, folks. Words of wisdom from Stephen T. Siegel. Let's just take a moment to write that all down. You done? No? Well, re-listen afterwards, but not right now. He's about to talk to us about poetry. Yeah, poetry I love because, you know, in a lot of what I do, you're trying to get words to say exactly what you mean. Like when you write an animation script, you've got to be very precise about what you're asking the board artist to draw. You've got to be very precise about what you're asking the actor to communicate through dialogue. But the interest for me in art is always the gap. You know, like in comic books, you have a panel and then another panel and the reader is left to decide what happened in between. And that's fascinating. And poetry, for my money, is the hardest thing because you're using the fewest words to communicate the most ideas instead of using a lot of words to communicate a specific idea. And I love that that openness. I like the the difficulty and the challenge of trying to figure out what is meant by words that are not exactly stating the idea they're trying to tell you. I think that's, that's all my favorite stuff. Uh, I like theater that's very abstract and avant-garde. I like music that's hard to figure out. I watched... Um, Twin Peaks did a new series of shows and I was confused through most of it. I'm like, what is happening? Uh, and I hate this show, but I watched it all. And now I think about it all the time because I didn't actually hate it. It just challenged me and I'm still trying to solve what the puzzles mean to me. And I may figure it out, I may not, but that to me seems really useful that I keep coming back to it in my mind, as opposed to something that I watch once and enjoy, but forget about it. Poetry has that ability very deep to stay in the Thank you so much. That was actually quite enlightening. And thank you again for joining us on the show to talk about your experience, your journey, everything about Ben 10. I love this a lot. Thanks. Well, I super appreciate you having me on. And it's a delight, even though I have yet to set foot on the African continent, to at least be able to speak to some people there. That sounds great. And I hope to get there soon. <laughs> What's a great way to start the new season? Nostalgic, isn't it? And what's even more magical is getting to speak to one of the people that made my childhood. It makes me believe even more in the work to connect storytellers. Like I always say, we're really not as different as we like to think that we are.